Yes, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Andrew will be preaching out of Ephesians chapter 3, um, verses 14 to 21 this morning, if you want to open up and follow along with me. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you strength, strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Our missionary highlight this week is James and Rebecca Holt. Missionary, local missionaries here. James is in seminary at Master's uh, Seminary, and he also works with Anclados Spanish-speaking church here on our campus and in the El Medina area. So we'll be praying for them, and we also want to lift up prayers for the Dunham family. Uh, the Dunham family has lost their father, grandfather, the, earlier this week, so we'll be lifting them up as they uh, will be missing their grandfather. Um, so you may join me in the prayer that I have prepared for us this morning. Almighty Father, we remember your power in creating the heavens and the earth. You are our eternal God, one in three persons. We honor you and glorify you. You deserve our worship and praise in song and in the reading of your word and in our very lives. We are not worthy of your love, as we have rebelled against you in our pride and arrogance, thinking we can run our own lives, but we cannot. We turn to you and humble ourselves to repent of our sins, so we ask you to hear us and have mercy on us today. We know that you hear us because of your spoken word saying to us that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is true because you have sent your son Jesus to take the punishment that we deserve on himself that we could be restored in faith to you. We thank you for your mercy. And we pray for your presence now to give encouragement to the discouraged, to give strength to the weak, to give us joy in the truth that we are not abandoned to ourselves. We pray for James and Rebecca and their family as they sacrificially serve you and the body of Christ in our Spanish-speaking community and they're reaching out to our neighbors in El Medina. We pray for your protection and for the fruit in their labors. Now we pray for ears and ears to hear and eyes to see as we join together in the reading and studying of your word together. May your spirit be with Andrew as he reads and shares with us from your inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
God our Father, we, we thank you and we praise you that we can sing this truth, this truth to ourselves, to one another, and, and to you. God, we worship a Jesus that loved us and loves us so deeply and so fully that he would sacrifice his very life, die a death he did not deserve so that we who had not earned right standing before God could be called righteous, forgiven and accepted because of the blood of Christ. God, we thank you for that marvelous truth this morning. We pray that as we look at your word, that we would see you more clearly. And in so doing, be transformed to be more like you. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Through the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. And when you get to... Um, take the passage that you're going to preach on, sometimes you realize after the fact, why, why did I pick this? <laughs> um, there are certain uh, passages where you, you stammer more than you preach. Um, so I think this is one of those, this is one of those mountain peak kind of passages. And, um, but I pray that the Lord will use it to, to help you and to, uh, to be clear and, and all those things. So um, as we get into this passage, I, I want to kind of describe to you why, why this passage. And really, um, as, as many of you know, uh, any, any transition period is, is really a great time that makes you start thinking about yourself and your life. And um, another thing that does that is when you have little kids. Uh, they start to draw out responses in you that uh, you didn't know were there, and you start to you start to ask and just wonder, you know, am I am I really who I say I am? Is the is the godliness that I'm supposed to have what comes out in the moments when my heart gets you know squeezed on and we see what's really in there, and you start to, to wonder, and, and, and really this comes out in a few different ways. I, I saw it in, in myself. I saw it um, in my time just doing counseling with people and, and talking with people. There was this refrain that started coming back to me that was from all different ages, something along the lines of, hey, I, I, I'm praying, I'm reading the Bible, but I just don't feel close to the Lord. And I, I don't know why that is. I don't know what's going on. And so I, I hear that quite a bit. And then if you look broader, um, some of you may be kind of up on this and, and some of you not, but recently there was a report published about the uh, Southern Baptist denomination and some things that have been going on there, really sad, really difficult. Um, but more broadly, in evangelicalism, we're starting to realize there, something's wrong in especially our leaders. It's almost as though we've got this checklist of things, but, but the they can meet that and it's okay, but the character, the deep character of a person can, can be rotted out in the center. And we're seeing all these moral collapses and, and it makes you wonder, what, what have we missed? What, what's going on here? And so with my own kind of thinking about these things in my own heart and in my own mind and seeing it in ministry, seeing it out more broadly in the evangelical world, and then as I'm processing this, uh, I start reading a, a certain text in scripture and then also certain books and, and, and quotes from them, and I'll share some of these with you, but 
passages like 2 Corinthians 3 that talk about us being transformed into the Lord's image as we behold the glory of Christ. Passages that talk about, like in the Psalms, where it talks about uh, my soul waits in silence for the Lord. The passages that talk about seeking His face. Passages like Psalm 1 that talk about meditating on Scripture, and that will, that's, characterizes the person who is happy, who is blessed, that they meditate on God's Word day and night. Passages like Psalm 34 that talk about taste and see that the Lord is good. And we could list off a number of other passages that talk about this, this sense that goes beyond just knowing, yeah, I know God is good, but to taste and see and to grasp it. And then uh, two, two old guys who um, I think probably wore wigs, uh, John, Jonathan Edwards and John Owen, started reading some of them. And, and some of these quotes, uh, this first one's actually not from them, but, but almost everything else this morning um, quote-wise, will be from them, but it is possible for Christians to live their lives with a high degree of phoniness, hollowness, and inauthenticity. The reason is because they have failed to move the truth into their hearts, and therefore it has not actually changed how they live. There's a disconnect here, from here to here. Now, Now on to, this is Edwards and then Owens. There's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and graciousness on the heart. And now this last one from Owen. Let us not mistake ourselves. To be spiritually minded, to be godly, is not to have the notion and knowledge of spiritual things in our minds. It is not to be constant, no, nor to abound in the performance of duties reading my Bible, praying, serving at church, loving other people. No. Both of these may be present, the knowledge and the actions, when there is no grace in the heart at all. The real essence of the Christian life is to have our minds and hearts truly exercised with delight about heavenly things, especially Christ himself. The heart, the core. And and, and so... As I was reading those passages and reading those quotes, and I landed on this passage, and what I think that this passage reveals to us has been so helpful, so encouraging. I, I wanted to go here with you, and we, we genuinely will. I know pastors just say this sometimes, but we really will just scratch the surface of this passage. You could go for weeks and weeks on drawing out what's here, but I want to give you kind of what we'll do is I want to give you an overview of like a, a flyover of the passage. And then I want to talk about a problem that's inherent in this passage that Paul sees, a potential problem that Paul sees, and then the solution he gives in the passage. So it's going to be quite a long lead-up before we walk line by line through the passage, but I think it's helpful and necessary. So just to give you a quick sort of overview of what this passage is getting at, we have to realize this. It comes after, (laughs) it's in chapter 3, it comes after chapter 1 and 2. Uh, chapter 1 and 2 are some of the densest, most beautiful distillments of theological truth in all of Scripture. Paul talks about if you are in Christ, you have access to riches. He's poured out his love on you. He's lavished grace upon grace on you. He's raised you from the dead spiritually. He's poured out all these great and wonderful and magnificent things on you. It's like the heights of doctrinal peaks that you could go to. 
And then he lands at this prayer. And this prayer is this bridge between all the doctrine, and then in chapter 4 he turns to say, okay, this is how you ought to live kind of more practically. And this hinge prayer is the summary statement after all the doctrine, what, what's he going to pray? Right? Like, what, what does he want for them after he's gone through this whole, all the blessings that we've had, our union, Jews and Gentiles in one body that's being built into a spiritual temple that's going to fill the earth with God's glory? Then what, Paul? And this passage is where he lands. And he gets real flowery with his language. But if you strip it down to just the core of what he's saying, the core of this is I bow my knees, so I pray, that. You, God would grant that you would be strengthened in your inner being so Christ would dwell in your hearts. I want you to be strengthened so that Christ can dwell in your hearts. Now, we'll come back to all these things. We're going to make multiple passes. But he expands on it further down and says, verse 18, that you would have strength to comprehend, that's to grasp, to really take it down into your soul, the length, breadth, height, depth, and to know the love of Christ and be filled with all the fullness of God. So he wants us to do, here, here's to put it in other terms, he's praying that what they know and what he's been talking about in chapters 1 and 2 would go from the head to the heart. He's praying, to use a kind of famous analogy that Jonathan Edwards used, we can know that honey is sweet. Nowadays we can even talk about, you know, we know the chemical makeup of it, we know the sweetness scale, how it compares to other sugars and all these other things. You can know all that. But when you taste it, whole other thing. And he's praying here that we would not just know that the Lord is good, but that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. That all these realities would press down into our heart. Now, I said there's a problem. There is a problem that is sort of inherent in this passage, a potential problem. And we can see what it is by just sort of surveying this church in Ephesus, all that scripture tells us about this church in Ephesus. So, we, as we look at them, the first time that we're introduced to this church in Ephesus is way back in Acts 18, 19, and 20, those chapters. And what we see there is that Paul spends two years with this church, two years training, discipling, teaching them. I mean, can you imagine, like, hey, we had the Apostle Paul as our pastor for two years. Then he leaves Timothy, his protege, in Ephesus. And we have reasonable, uh, we can go to passages to see that Ephesus is this key city in Paul's mind. It's a city that kind of opens the door to the rest of the Gentile world. And Paul is, is he knows we, this is strategic. We need to get the gospel uh, uh, anchored in here that that light can then go out to the whole world. And so he knows this is a key city. And as we start to look at what he says about it, we start to uncover Okay, the potential issue here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is Paul writing to Timothy, his protege, and he says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Okay, so he's leaving Timothy there. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Okay, you already start to see it, there are these people in Ephesus that are wandering off into these discussions and speculations and, and sort of um, 
backwoodsy kind of things. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't let them do that. We want love that issues from a pure heart. That's the aim of our charge. So you start to uncover there's, there's maybe this issue in Ephesus, and you can see it more clearly if you just walk through the book and look at this, this idea of love and how, how Paul brings that up. So let's, let's look here in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 2. He's, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. Chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore be imitators of God, as loved or beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church. And then, to kind of put the exclamation point on it, the very two, last two verses in the book, Ephesians 6, 23 and 24, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Are you hearing the theme there? Love, 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 love. And then, lest you think that I am kind of just seeing something that's not there, we actually see what happens with this church. Go to Revelation chapter 2, the letter to this church in Ephesus. We saw the hints at what this problem might be both in his instruction to Timothy and then in, in the uh, passages in Ephesians, but we actually see that Paul's potential fears have actually played out. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Revelation, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That's a great description of a church. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had This problem, potential problem, became an actual problem for them. And I think that this potential problem is the problem that would be most likely for people in our type of churches to fall into. I think it is the most common ploy that the devil uses 
with churches like ours and with people like us. It's a, a loveless, a, a, the way Paul says it in another passage, it has the form of godliness but denies its power. It looks to all extents and purposes to be godliness, but it's empty. It's empty. And, and I was talking with someone, and they used this analogy, and it was so good that um, I, couldn't, I couldn't resist bringing, not bringing it in here. We, we, what happens, and again, I think this is a tactic of the enemy. We, we get pressure from the culture and pressure from outside, and we move to the boundaries and the edges to start fighting. And so we say the Bible is true. It is God's word. It is inerrant. It is inspired. And, and we ought to fight for these things. And we fight for them. And we have this boundary line that we draw. Marriage is between a man and a woman um, for life. We draw that line here. And we start drawing all these lines and defining the boundaries, which we, we must do. But what happens is that we get so caught up in the boundaries we get so caught up in defining if someone's godly or not by what, how, they, how they interact at those boundary edges that we lose the core. We lose what we read earlier, the real essence of faith, a communion with Christ, a walk with him, a real relationship and savoring of him as a person. I think this is a real potential Danger. We saw this in the Reformation. If you know church history at all, you may have heard the name Martin Luther. There was this incredible revival uh, in the 1500s, and it came through a recovery of doctrine. Wonderful recovery of doctrine, spread throughout Europe and throughout the whole world eventually, and it was incredible. And, and Luther was German, and so Germany was one of the main core hotspots. And, and what you see is, year after year, his Next generation, next generation, they honed their theology more and more. And it was a great blessing. It was wonderful. Their works are, are helpful to this day. But as the generations progressed, it got more academic, more academic, more head, more head, more head. And pretty soon, now, if I go read German theology coming out of Germany from the last 50 to 100 years, you feel like you have to go take a bath afterwards. You're like, you don't say that about God, the things that they say. It's empty. It's dead. And this cycle is, is really um, deceptive because you start out loving the truth, loving sound doctrine, and we ought to. We must. Doctrine is how we, how we know what's true about the world and ourselves and Christ, and you, you want to guard this. That's why we do the boundaries thing. But if you then lose and start to have rot in that core. You, you neglect this, this core of relationship with Christ. What eventually happens is that rots out is you lose the doctrine. That's what happened with the Reformation. Eventually, the doctrine in Germany and some of those other areas was completely lost. What you, what you sought to protect at first, you lost through this cycle. And so we have to keep the core the core. And that's what Paul is driving at here. What I'd, like, what I'd like to do before we walk line by line through this passage, I want to give you some signs. What are some signs that this problem might be real in my heart and my life? Or some, some beginning warning lights that come on, you know, check engine light, check heart light. Um, what, what are some of those? And, and just to be you know, clear about this, these are just things that I think they fit with, with Scripture. I'm not pulling these directly out of this passage, but I think that they're, they're helpful warning signs for us. So what are these? The first one, are you content without real heart change? 
Some of us are, are totally content. Oh yeah, I believe in Christ and I know I'm going to heaven and I got my nice life and I got the car and I got this and I'm, I'm good. I don't need to worry about am, am I real in the depths of my heart? Have I really been changed? Uh, here's Owen again. Many love to have only the outward form of godliness and could not care less about evangelical privileges. They do not seek the marrow, the, the, the core of divine promises, which is the very life of communion with Christ. They are not concerned whether they have spiritual peace, refreshing comforts, unspeakable joys, or the peace of assurance. Without some taste and experience of these things, the Christian life is heartless, lifeless, and useless. Secondly, do we find peace and satisfaction in outward things? You know, it's a good day, I read my Bible, and I prayed, it's a good day. Or, you know, I swore at my spouse, and uh, I was angry with my kids, it was a bad day. Or, you know, I served in church, and I had to do something I didn't want to do, but I did it anyways, it was a good day. Those are all outward things. Are those outward things what, what, what give us a sense of peace and satisfaction? Or is it that high or low, good or bad, my failings or my quote-unquote successes, I'm walking with the Lord. and I love Him and He loves me and we are together, united. Number three, do we become uncomfortable when people speak about experience or deep love for Christ? I mean, some of us, we just, it's like a foreign language has come out when someone starts talking about Christ as a person, as a real living person that we have communion with. It's like, What? And the question is, do we love an idea or a person? The offer of the gospel is Christ himself. That's what makes heaven, heaven. The offer isn't heaven, the offer is Christ. And on the new earth, we'll enjoy him forever. And the question is then, do we, do we actually love him? Number four, another potential telltale sign here. You have little or no time in which to meditate and pray alone with God. Psalm 62, 1, David talks, he says, my soul waits for God alone in silence. Oh, my soul, wait for God alone in silence. Do you have that time where you're silent before the Lord? This next one I'm going to add in because it goes so closely together with it. Your prayer time is almost wholly consumed by a list mentality. Got my list, I pray through my list, check, I move on. No, this is... Um, um, Aaron and I last week got to go to... My wife and I got to go to... Um, a, a fancy dinner. And it wasn't like, okay, we're done. That was good. Check. Let's move on to the next thing. That, that, that's not what, what this is, is a feast spiritually. Do you, do you take time? Do you ever have time to savor, to, to read, to, to think about what it is that Christ died for you and to savor that and let it move from your head down into your heart and, and, and impress on you a sense that God really is good, he really is excellent, to move from, yeah, I know honey is sweet, to I've tasted that it's sweet. Number six, just two more here. You have a vague sense that you aren't growing or are drifting away from the Lord, even though you're doing the right things. I pray, I read, but like, I just don't feel close to the Lord. Maybe that's a sign that you have this disconnect between the head and the heart. Number seven, in your unplanned reactions... What slips out of your heart is not in line with the maturity you thought you had. That's when we see our real self. Jesus says that what comes out of our mouth is the overflow of the heart. When the heart is squeezed with hard situations or things that bother you and make you angry, what slips out is the real you. And when that doesn't match with who you thought or who you want to be, 
maybe I have a disconnect then here. And so this, is, it, this problem is, is real, it's dangerous, it's deadly. But praise the Lord, this passage is the answer. This passage is the solution. It gives the solution to this problem. And so let's walk through it. What we have here in this passage, just so you know, Paul has basically what he does is he gives an overview and then he expands on it more. So I'm going to go back and forth between these two, and I'll, I'll explain it as we go, but um, there, there's kind of an overview and then an expansion in, in verses um, the end of 17 and then 18 and 19. So let me just start here in verse 14. For this reason, because of all that has followed, come up to this point, chapter 3, verse 14, all that has come up, all of the incredible theology that he has just laid out, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, to pray something from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named so a uh, real quick note here that every there i think is functioning in the sense of every within god's family it's translated further up as whole the whole structure 221 um, the whole family in heaven and on earth is named and grouped under the father and this father is is guiding and guarding and keeping us and verse 16 the, this is what he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So whatever the bank account on the riches of his glory is, that's the, that's the level to which he wants you to be strengthened. All of the riches of God's glory, that you would have that type of strength, and you're going to need it for what comes next. That, that through his spirit... You would be strengthened with power. By the way, remember, in, I think it's Romans 8, where the Spirit is the one who sheds abroad God's love in our heart. It's the Spirit who causes this, this sense, this savoring, this experience of God's goodness. The Spirit does something in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. These are people that already believed. They have the Spirit. Christ does dwell in their hearts. What's he talking about? He's talking about a deeper sense of the realities and the truths that they know, that it would be impressed onto their hearts. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ. That's what you're being strengthened to do, to know the love of Christ that is beyond knowledge, it surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that Christ may dwell in you that first time through and the second time through, that all the fullness of God would fill you. So I want to walk through and give you a few things to notice in this passage here. The first thing, the solution to the problem, the first thing about it is it is God-initiated. It's God-initiated. Do you see here at the end of verse 17 that you... Being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted there is, we, it could be translated nourished. It's the idea of, of a root that draws up nourishment from the soil. Nourished or, or rooted or planted and then grounded. This is the word for um, a foundation stone in a building. Founded, established, so that your soul at the rock bottom is established, founded upon, and draws its nourishment from Love, God's love. 
God's love. This is the, the soil in which the solution happens. And this is something that I have underemphasized, and I think because we see people that, that emphasize God's love and ignore some of the other aspects, we're afraid to emphasize God's love. And I at least have, have noticed recently that that's, that's wrong. God's love, we have to understand the force, the power, the width, the, it, it directed all of his omnipotent power for your good that, that never has its arms folded, that is always like the, the, um, the father of the prodigal son running out to meet him. I've, I've got everything prepared for you. Every time you sin, that's his attitude towards you. Not, and, and, and that is the ground and the soil in which our growth happens. That's the foundation of our growth. So it's, it's God-initiated, and, and next it's God-given. Do you see in verse 16? He prays that, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant, that's a gift, he may grant you to be strengthened. It, it's not another thing that you can add to your list and check off to feel good about yourself. It's not another thing that we can move past. It is the core that we would come to the Lord in prayer and say, God, show me who you are. Impress on me what I know to be true. Make it real in my heart and life. I want to taste and see that you're good. It's a gift from him. And then we see as he expands on it in verse 18, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. That word, comprehend. So it, um, it's used in a variety of contexts, one of them being like when you chase after someone and you finally catch up to them and grab them and bring them to the ground. The idea is that, that the truth wouldn't be out there, but it would be in here. That you would grasp, that you would really get it. There are other words he could have used that are more cog uh, cognitive words, like just know or something like that. But this is, this is a deeper sense of the truth, a deeper communion with the Lord. That you may have strength to grasp or comprehend. It's, it's more than, than belief. The demons believe and shudder. They fear, maybe also in rage. They hate the truth. This is more than that. It is not enough to assent to the truth if you don't actually have a real sense of the excellency of the person that you love. A good example of this, um, this came from another Puritan, I don't remember who, but he's walking down the street and he sees a dad and a son. And they're walking together. And at one point, the dad leans over and he scoops up the son in his arms and he holds him and he gives him a kiss and he cuddles him and he puts him back down. And this Puritan says about that, that son was legally in the exact same standing in the father's arms and when he walked next to him. He was a son, the exact same both ways. But his experience of that sonship was totally different when that father scooped him up into his arms. And that's what Paul is praying for here. That you would move from just knowing the legal reality that I'm right with God to experiencing in your own life that... that Yes, he loves me. Yes, he's satisfied with me. Yes, he, he has welcomed me. And yes, he is good and true and righteous and majestic and holy. It's moving from a, 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 having an opinion about God to a sense of who he is. From head to heart, from knowing to taste. 
And this is a real encounter with the Lord that happens in prayer. That scripture shows and that you can, you can go read in church history something that has been experienced and is experienced by believers. This is the normal pattern of the Christian life. Now, this grasping is of something. What are you grasping onto? Well, that you being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. By the way, it is a community project. With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That is a wordplay there. To know what is unknowable. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The, the knowledge that he wants you to have is the knowledge of Christ's love. This isn't, this message, this passage, this isn't chastisement. This isn't like, you're bad, you need to change. This is, there's a feast, come and get it. This is, there is, there's joy and peace and contentment to be had, and he is more ready to give it to us than we are to, to ask for it. it, it it's there, riches, treasures of, of joy to be found in him, that we would know the love of Christ. It, it's, it's amazing to me. Like, he could have said the holiness of Christ, the glory of Christ, the majesty of Christ. All of this would have fit perfectly. No, the love of Christ. His omnipotent desire to let nothing come in between his pursuit of you if you're a believer, to know you and to walk with you in closeness. Now, there's some interesting stuff in this part here that's worth bringing out. Do you see he says that you would know uh, with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth? Okay, so we're moving into the territory where um, I am not 100% certain on this because not all the research has been done yet, but they found papyrus um, dating around this time, around the city of Ephesus, where this exact phrase, length, breadth, height, and depth, is used in basically um, um, occult... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um occult practices, um, magic rituals, basically, to enter the spiritual realm and to interact with the spiritual realm. And if you remember, back in Acts, it's the Ephesians that burn all their magic books. So it seems possible, again, do your research and, and listen with discernment, but um, it seems possible that Paul is doing what a lot of other scripture writers have done and basically taking something from their past that they would have been familiar with and, and almost slamming it and saying, you thought that, that, that joy and peace and power and access to spiritual realities, you could get that through that? No, it's found in Christ. No, it's found in Christ's love. It's found in the person of Jesus. And, and I think this is important because this still is a big deal today. You've heard of the, um, the, the rise, they talk about the rise of the religious nuns, like N-O-N-E, that they have no affiliation religiously. That's a huge kind of thing in America right now. The thing is, it's not atheism. If you talk to young people today, they are so craving spiritual experience, they're going anywhere and everywhere. Psychedelics, other types of drugs, raves, um, uh, Eastern mysticism and practices like this, they, they're, they're doing anything they can to access the spiritual world because they crave it. And I think that Lord forbid that they come to the church and say, oh, well, you're all head. We've had real spiritual experiences, and whatever you have over here, Jesus isn't it, because we've had more real experiences elsewhere. They need to see that, that 
No, we don't, we don't need all those things. We don't need illicit access to the spiritual realm. We access, have access to the throne of grace, to the Father, a real living relationship with a real person through Christ. And it is satisfying, and it is deep, and it is real. And so he wants us to know the length, breadth, height, depth of the love of Christ. It surpasses knowledge. We're in an ocean, and, and we have a soda can to scoop it up. It surpasses knowledge. We'll never reach the end of it. Whenever we think that we've gotten to the end of it, we're at the very foothills with, with vistas on and on and on. We never reach the end of him. This strengthening, the next thing I want you to see, is where it happens. Going back to his, his first overview description, in verse 16 at the end, he wants them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul divides humanity into outer, outer person and inner person. So that inner person encompasses all that you think, you love, you plan, all of that. It's, it's kind of the Old Testament term heart, if you're familiar with that. And, and this inner being, this inner person, is where the change happens. So the, the Puritans talk about this. Paul talks about this especially in 2 Corinthians where he talks about that we are transformed as we behold the glory of the Lord. We are transformed. And this transformation, it's the only thing that touches to the core of who you are. Nothing else can, can come close. So if we, if, if we um, I'm going to say this um, stronger, I, I'm not trying to be harsh with anyone or, or demean anything, but if we, if we got this and practiced this, we would put Christian counselors out of business. Because it, when you move from what you know to having it sink down deep into your soul, it changes you at a level that nothing else can touch. It changes what you love at the core of your being. It changes what gives you delight and pleasure and what you hate and what you want to run from and what you want to run to. It changes you in a way that nothing else can. In your inner being. And the last thing I want you to see, verse 20 and 21, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The last thing I want you to see is how sure it is. He is more ready to give us himself than we care to even ask. He is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or even think. I, our, our thoughts of Christ's love are so shallow. I mean, think, so we are amazed when we see an amazing painting and the intricacy of it, or amazed when, um, if you're into sports, you know, you see someone make a play and you're just like, how, how does a human even do that? Like, how do you catch a ball like that? Or how do you, you know, and it's intricacy and beauty that really captures us often. Think of the intricacy and beauty of a God who spoke the universe into existence thousands of years ago and governs every moment and every molecule in such a way that we, he can honestly say to you, believer, all things are working together for good for those that love Christ Jesus. That means that there is not one molecule out of place in this entire universe and that all of them weaved together perfectly in a tapestry that is more complex, more beautiful, more incredible than is even fathomable to us. And that love, the length, the height, the depth, the patience of it, the kindness of it, the, the, the long-sufferingness of it is, is 
That's what we're experiencing. Come and get it, is the call. It's sure, and it's according to His power within us. As we wrap up here, uh, three kind of uh, encouragements for you. So some of us, we, well, all of us, we have to seek this. We ought not to be set. There are seasons where your habits carry you through. You're dry spiritually, and you read the Word, and it, it, it's dry. There's seasons. But that's not the norm. That's not something to be satisfied with. That's something to seek to get out of. That God, that God would open your heart again. That you would love Him. That you would savor Him. And if you've never experienced this, you may not know Him. That you would have a real sense, not just that, yeah, I know He's good. I, it's not enough to, to assent to the truth. But that you would have a real experience of His excellency and His glory and His majesty and His friendship. Everything in this life all the best places you've ever visited, the best sunsets you've ever seen, all the best food you've ever eaten, the best music you've ever listened to, all the most exciting, wonderful experiences, all of the best relationships, the, the pinnacle of the good things that God has given us in this life, those relationships, those are just the faint little trickles, and He is the fountainhead. And He calls you to Himself. Seek to experience His goodness. Some of us in that category, you don't need new light. Obviously, we keep reading. Obviously, we keep wanting to know the Lord more. But we need, to, we need to let what we do know sink down into our hearts. Now, another category of us, we need to get to know Christ. I've talked with people where they say, yeah, I don't, I don't feel close to the Lord. I don't know what's going on. And, and you talk to them and you realize, you, you, don't even, you don't even know about him. Or the more dangerous category that we can all fall into is, you think you do know. To approach a passage with I know is the most dangerous place to be. Oh yeah, that story, I know that one. Oh yeah, when Jesus did that, yeah, I know that. I mean, we're wading into an ocean. It's like, I mean, imagine walking out into the Pacific, which we apparently know less about that than space, and wading out and the water hits your feet and you go, oh yeah, okay, I got it, I, I know that. Get to know Christ. And then the third thing, um, this is a little more practical, but slow down. In this time period, in this place that we live, um, many of us, we simply don't have time in the schedule for the type of slow meditation, silence before the Lord that this calls for. This isn't something that we can check off. This isn't something that happens in the time you can microwave dinner. It, it, it's, do you have time with Christ, this might mean you need to rearrange your schedule. I'll leave the rest between you and the Lord, but th you may need to change the core of how you operate in life to make room for this type of time with the Lord. We might need to slow down. We might need to cut out some things. So let's close with, I suppose, two things. This is a quote from John Owen. Mike gave me the book where this came from like years ago. I just didn't read it, and I didn't read it, and then I finally read it. And this quote like just destroyed me. Because John Owen, like hundreds of pages of theology, and good theology, really good. Like, he's awesome. And this quote, so he says, In your thoughts of Christ, 
be very careful that they are conceived and directed according to the rule of the word. Awesome. We're, we're not leaving off the word. This is word-centered. Doctrine is important. Don't, don't leave off the rule of the word, lest you deceive your own souls. But we are not to forego our duty to enjoy Christ because others have been mistaken in theirs. Nor should we part with practical, fundamental principles of our faith because they have been abused by superstition. And this is where it gets good. Yet I must say, I would rather be among those, among those in whom the actings of their love and affection toward Christ fall into some irregularities and excesses in their manner of expressing it, than among those who, professing themselves to be Christians, almost disown having any thoughts or affections for Christ. So to put that in our English, I would rather be a little bit of a weirdo, get some things wrong even doctrinally. There's other places where he says that more directly. I'd rather have, have, get some things wrong and yet love Christ than to be among those who say they love Christ and get the, all their doctrine right, but they're dead inside. Or maybe not dead, but lifeless. We talked, I said a little bit ago, that he's the fountainhead of all joy. It were a well-spent journey to creep hands and feet through seven deaths and seven hells to enjoy him up at the fountainhead. Do you want him? That is the desire that runs throughout the storyline of the Bible. What does Moses ask for? Moses had been with him on the mountain. Moses had, had talked with him face to face as a friend. And Moses says, show me, chapter 33, verse 18, show me your glory. Show me the fullness of who you are. I want you. What does David say? I want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze upon his beauty. Yeah, that's going to be physical on the new earth in a sense, but we can experience that now spiritually to get a sense of, of his goodness. Paul talks about this. David, Moses, and again, this is not a, a chastisement. This is not a beatdown. This is, this is we have access to, to a feast, to riches, to peace and joy and contentment and happiness and gladness that not a single thing in this life can touch or rock or upset. And it comes through a real living communion with Christ. That's what this passage Paul prays for in the Ephesians. That's what he wants for us. That's what I want for us. So let's pray that God would give us that. Father, we are only here because of what you have done. We can't force any of this. You have to give us a sense of, of, of your goodness. Please impress it on our hearts. Stamp it on our, our eyeballs, Lord. Let, let us always see the truths and, and let them move from our head to our heart. Let us know, taste, and see that you are good. We love you. Thank you for your patience and your kindness and your love that overflows day by day, moment by moment, year by year. Um, Lord, you, you will receive the honor and the glory forever, and that is, that is right and good, and so we worship you. Amen. Amen. Would you stand if you're able and join as we close in singing?
Thank you, Andrew. Remember, we have a VBS Jumpstart music practice after third service today and on June the 12th for our dessert for the Go With Grace. Go online and sign up for that. Um, don't forget, we'd love to have you uh, and be entertained by the Blue Diamonds. So let's go to 
Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 for our benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.